You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. So today's topic is the 2022 Battle of Mariupol, a legendary battle that occurred from February 24th, 2022 to May 20th, 2022. Our guest is Aiden Aslan. Aiden is a British citizen who was captured by Russian forces in April of 2022 while fighting as a Ukrainian Marine in Mariupol. Aiden, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Aiden, I've seen a lot you know, on TV. I am personally, as a student of urban warfare, fascinated about the Battle of Mariupol, the siege of the Avistol. I think it will be an iconic battle on there with Thermopylae and the Spartans, the Alamo, just a long list of legendary battles. So I'm really honored to have you on the show. But I wanted to start with, how does a British citizen get to Ukraine? Good question. So, I mean, obviously there'll be people that were watching that might know of me. So before I got into Ukraine, going back before 2015, I was never ex-military, never had any dreams or aspirations to go down a military path. Like, as far as I was concerned, I was like focused on like joining the police and doing good for the community as a police officer. However, back in 2014, we had the rise of ISIS and everything that was going on in the Middle East uh, with ISIS like reclaiming territory. And then we had the execution videos and then the uh, Yazidi genocide that took place in Shangal in North Iraq. And then some point in between 2014 and early 2015, I made the decision to go to Syria to go fight alongside the uh, Kurds in northern Syria to like basically fight against ISIS. I was there from 2015 to 2017. I'd, I'd been home a few times before, but that was like my rough period of time when I was in Syria. And then when, when I had finished there, I decided to go home. And once I'd returned home, I did have some harassment from the police and whatnot because of my time in Syria. So after that, I, I was looking for where I could go to like basically start a new life, leave behind the past of like the serious stuff and I previously had some friends and knew some Ukrainian friends that were in Ukraine at the time like previously that I'd spoken about like with them a bunch about Ukraine like politics and stuff and during some point in I think it was 2017 I saw that you could actually serve in the military for three years and at the end of that, you could take uh, Ukrainian citizenship. So for me, I chose to go serve in the Ukrainian military, which I saw as, as a path to earning a secondary uh, citizenship. And then on top of that, there was also the uh, camaraderie, something that I, I was also craving a bit after I'd finished Syria. Like I, I tried going into like normal work, but after I'd been like to Syria, I couldn't really adjust really like back to normal after going through that. So um, I decided to go to Ukraine in 2018. Initially, I went there in February, just trying to get through the commissariat. There were some problems the first initial three months. And then eventually I came back in September time because my visa ran out and went to the Ukrainian uh, military recruitment office, did about three weeks recruitment process, medical testing, eyesight, like 
everything you normally expect from a late recruitment office. Passed all that, and then they sent me my paperwork and then sent me to the Ukrainian boot camp. So in 2018, you made it through boot camp, and then were you assigned to a Ukrainian military unit? So the way they do it over there, when you uh, go to the recruitment office, you have to, once you finish the first paper-like shift-like phase, you then have to go approach a Ukrainian military unit and request a invitation from the battalion commander or the brigade commander. So at the time, the recruitment officer who was like handling my case, he had a friend that was down in the Ukrainian Marines in Odessa, and he put me in contact with him and basically set up the uh, meeting so I could go to the base and get an invitation. Once I had the invitation, I had to like come back to Kiev, finish the final phase. And then once that had taken place, they then gave me my orders basically to go to the uh, Marine Training School in Mikolaev. So then you joined the unit. In what position did you serve in the unit? An infantryman? uh... So... Once I'd finished the training, the training is like two months. And once I finished that, I get sent to my unit, a just regular Marine Infantry unit uh, company. Initially, I was a uh, gunner for one of the BTRs, the turret gunner. So I was with this company for about three months. And after three months, I'd put in a uh, request to transfer because at that time, the, the base I was in, it was it was like in the middle of nowhere. So like it was like far from like any like place where you could like rent a house or whatnot. So I put a request in to transfer to Mikolaev at the time. But just before the, like just after two months, we got deployed to the front line in Donbass. So in between that, I think it was like three or four months down the line, I was eventually transferred to the battalion that I've been in for the like past four years, um, which was based in Mikolaev. So one, once I got transferred to my to the main battalion I've spent most of my time in, I was put into Air Assault Company. In the Ukrainian military, you have Airborne, and then you have, uh, within the Ukrainian Marines, you have like an Airborne Company, so basically the paratroopers. So this is the company I was in. In English, it's just called Air Assault. So I was in the Airborne Company of the Marines. Initially, when I got there, I was a rifleman. But we were deployed at the time, so I was sent to the front line with them. And I think after two weeks, during my time there, this was just before they brought in the new ceasefire back then, like back in 2019. At that time, I was a rifleman and I asked if I can shoot the RPG. So I went to shoot the RPG like two times. I got like a good hit on one of the bunkers that was like opposite us. And then that went up the chain of command. And then the commander like turned around and said to me, okay, like, your new position is RPG guy. Nice. So, so yeah, for the past like three and a half years, I was RPG. Well, Grenadier. I got my wings and I Ukrainian Marine Bray. In total, I think we did three deployments, but the third deployment was when we got invaded. So I'm not sure if that counts or not. No, of course it does. So during this period, I mean, there's been other foreigners that joined, like, like friends that I've known. In my air assault company, at one point, I think we had about seven foreigners. And we had like two or three other Brits. And then we had like one American, he was ex-airborne. Um, and then we had one Croatian, he was ex-Croatian uh, military. And then towards the end of, well, in August last year, it was running up to the time when I was due to finish my contract in the military. And by this point, I was like 
pretty like pissed off, like, you know, like dissatisfied because it's like getting to the end of my contract and I've got that mentality like getting out. So I figured I'll transfer to Mortar Company and just basically mong it until my contract finishes. But what happened was when I transferred to Mortar Company, I actually enjoyed it. So I ended up signing a new a new contract for a year. And then then we were deployed to Donbass again in November time. So we were on the front line for, well, up until the invasion happened on the 24th. So when do you get sent to Mariupol? Was it before the invasion on February 24th or? So we, we were already deployed. We were, we were based in the uh, village of Pavlopol, which is approximately 10 minutes down the road from Mariupol on the eastern flank, just above Shropinel. So people who were following me, they would have known I'd been like saying that this like invasion is going to happen for like a long time. And I was like saying we're going to get smashed uh, just because it's one well, the first line. It's just common sense. So in the few days running up to the invasion, I knew it was going to happen. You know, like the situation on the front line had deteriorated. And like the Russian side, they began like using artillery, like proper like 122 millimeter in some places they were using the 152 so the front line was like pretty active and but at the same time we were still bound by our ceasefire like regulations so we couldn't really do much in that regard Um, and then we also had commands being issued from up above telling us to make our go bags ready make sure we have a bag that we can just pick up and go don't take anything else just be ready to just go with like whatever minimum stuff you can carry and then on the 22nd, I went to the logistical hub behind the line to go collect our position, like products and like food and whatnot. You do it once a week, so someone gets picked to go do it. And I remember when I got to the logistical hub, I remember seeing like all of our battalion vehicles, like all the uh, truck, all the armoured infantry fighting vehicles, they were all being painted with identification markers. I remember seeing that and I, as soon as I saw that, like I knew something's going to happen because there's, there's no reason why we would put markers on our vehicles unless we were scared that we might misidentify something. So I think it was about, it was on the 23rd, we got a command that said no one's allowed to leave the position whatsoever. And then later in that evening, we got another command that said to turn off all electronics, like turn off your cell phones, internet, etc. Like just to put into perspective, because people, I know there'll be a lot of military like people in the West, they'll be thinking about like, what do you mean like cell phone, internet, you're on the front line, you shouldn't be using that OPSEC, obviously, and stuff like that. For the past like eight years, Ukraine's been in static like trench positions. Obviously, this is the modern era, so it was pretty common for like trenches to have antennas, the local cell network, so they can use internet and stuff like that, because the Russians, like both sides know where each other's positions are, there's it's not revealing anyone's locations. However, we did have whole rules in place. Like they did tell us that you can't say this and that if we had like local intelligence from our side who were monitoring the signals just to make sure no one was saying anything that they shouldn't be saying that might give away critical information. So we were allowed to use the internet in that regard. So just so people can understand why I'm mentioning the internet. So on the 23rd, and we get the command, shut off all electronics, like turn off all phones and whatnot. Right then I knew this is it. It's going to be a matter of hours until we see the first like shelling until it starts. And then at about 12 o'clock, I was on uh, radio duty in my position. I was on a four-man position. 
on one of the 120 water positions. And so at like 12 o'clock, I went on radio duty to just monitor just to see, because obviously you need to have someone on standby. And at about 2 a.m. was when I heard the first grad shelling. In the beginning, when I heard it, I was like, that sounds like grad. I'd never heard grad before, but I knew what it was. First thing I did was wake up my commander and he speaks English. I'm like, sir, sir, wake up. It's like, what, what, what? It's like the invasion started. I can hear grad. And then he like he gets up like half asleep and he's like, it's nothing, go back to sleep. So then eventually my shift ends and I go to sleep in full kick because I know it's not nothing. And then two hours go by and then we literally get stood too. The radio starts going crazy, like telling us to get to work, get to position, start getting given commands for like coordinate. And then we get our first fire mission. We shoot like 10 rounds at a tree line that's about four kilometers away. So we do our first fire mission. At that time when we're shooting, it, it's not loud, loud, but like you can hear like there's some fighting going on. We do the fire mission. And then as we're packing up and getting ready to run inside, we get hit with a grad volley. Luckily, it didn't hit us. It was somewhere 100 meters behind us or something because we were in like a sort of like a valley. So they couldn't pinpoint us exactly. I get into the bunker and like everyone's on edge and I'm, I'm saying like, is this it? Is this an invasion? At this time, like we, we don't know any information. No one's telling us any information about what's going on other than what's being said on the radio. And then everyone starts smoking cigarettes. And then I think after maybe 20 minutes, we, we again get told to like run out and do another fire mission. We do another fire mission. We get one stoppage and then we had to quickly stop it and like run back inside. And again, we got hit with another grad volley again like way off target and this time when we went in because when we went out it was proper all-out war it was like the sort of stuff that you hear in like the world war one movies of just constant barrage sort of like sounds so we ran back inside and at this point i'm asking again like what's the information like what's the situation we need to know what's going on i knew it was a war but i, I didn't know who was on our left who was on our right who was like behind us so I was like, I turned my uh, phone on because at the time, the way we were using our communication was through the internet. The internet's like showing our signal anyway. What difference is it going to make? So I, I turned my phone on and just as soon as I turned on the phone, like just all these messages just bombard my screen. All I can just see is just hundreds of notifications and messages from like family and just everyone just messaging me all at once. And then I just quickly go on Google and just type in Ukraine. And then that's like when I saw like the news headlines, Russia's invaded Ukraine. And then I see the map of it. And then I realize it's not like how I thought it was like a, just a Donbass or Eastern invasion. It was like a full scale invasion. So I was like pretty like shocked. I can't imagine. Do you at some point get told to pack up and move inside the city? So what happened, we continued doing like fire missions for the majority of the day. And it wasn't till about, I think it was about either 4 or 5 p.m. We got the order to basically fall back. We'd already prepared the position like a few days before when we got told about it. Like we had to prepare basically. So we'd already prepared somewhat. And so basically we just took our like rucksacks and stuff and just put it on the back of our truck. Because we're mortars, we have our own truck. So we're not like the infantry guys where they have to like haul everything. So we loaded our mortar and just took some of the ammunition and then we took our bags. And just before we left, we set fire to our bunker 
just made sure everything was burnt so there was nothing they could use or fucking get intelligence from. And we got the truck and then we drove probably about three kilometers like back to the village of Zara. And then once we got there, we had like one night to reorganize because at this point there was like a second line that had taken position. So we, we reorganized and then it was like the, the next day we went out again. And then I think it was after one more day or two more days, we eventually ended up getting the command to go to Mariupol to the Ilichar steelworks. So once we got to the steelworks, we uh, basically set ourselves up. We were in the, uh, the center of the steelworks in one of the bunkers. So like the vast majority of our brigade and our battalion were like in control of the steelworks, setting up defensive positions. And then we also had the arrival of the mobilization uh, units that had arrived. So at that point, everyone was like setting up the perimeter, digging in, getting ready for the Russians that were like not that far behind us. Yeah, I was wondering about that. So you were part of the 36 separate Marine Brigade? 36th uh, Marine Brigade, and then the battalion is the first separate Marine battalion. I was wondering how that coordination worked of knowing who's in the city already, whether it's, like you said, the mobilization forces, the Azov Regiment, the Operations Brigade, and Tank Brigade. It increases quickly, right? Yes. Yeah, so what happens normally, like Mariupol, it's home to, obviously, you've got Azov Battalion or Azov Regiment. And then you've got the 503rd Battalion, which is also a Marine unit. But they, at the time, they were deployed north of us to the city of, well, somewhere around uh, Dukachevsk sector. So they, they were like out of Mariupol like area. And then nearby in the town of Bidyansk, we have the 501st Marine Battalion. And they got ordered to go to Mariupol to defend it, I think. And then on top of that, you've also got like the basic National Guard units and you've got police units. There was a couple thousand, a few thousand people's worth of like different units and stuff. So quite a large force to defend the city. Where you got positioned, you said the Ilichar, I don't want to mispronounce it. The Ilichar still works. Yeah. And that's where you, you stayed the whole, the rest of the time? Yeah. Can you talk us through, you know, basically how did the positions work? How did the... The tactics work from fighting from it. I know you're so you're in a mortar position. I was in a mortar position, and then once once we got to Mariupol, I changed the uh, position to being just because at that point I already knew like if we go to Mariupol, we're going to be surrounded because it's basic like common tactic sense. The Russians were coming from us from the west from Crimea. And then obviously they were coming behind us. And when we got to the city, they were already like trying to cut us off. So I knew we were going to be cut off because of the situation in the rest of the country. So by that point, when we got to the steelworks, I'd asked to change position to move out of the mortar pit. Because for me, I didn't want to be caught in a mortar pit if we're going to be surrounded. Because I know from like past experience with Syria, like in regards to foreigners, if you get caught being a foreigner in any war, you're going to get a good... But if you get caught being a foreigner in like a position such as like artillery or sniper, you'll be lucky if you get out of this situation, depending on who it is that captures you. So by this point, I was with the company commander, like helping out where the battalion headquarters was for the time. So I was helping out with the ammunition, just helping with whatever was needed in that vicinity. Because of the way the situation was, like we still had to like man our, our positions, like just infantry positions, because everyone does it. 
there is no uh, not doing it. So we were doing basic like infantry stuff around our battalion HQ area. Were you setting up a defense, putting out obstacles, putting out mines? Yeah, it, we'll set up a defense, uh, like just setting up fighting positions around the battalion area, the battalion HQ. And then we eventually set up a uh, firewatch system. I got put on firewatch with a, another Ukrainian guy, basically just controlling entry to the bunker and then also monitoring the radio. So he was in charge of the battalion radio and then I was in charge of my company radio. So what would happen is every time there was artillery or every time there was an airstrike, I would then have to call around to all my mortar positions and basically just check in on everyone just to make sure everyone's alive. And then obviously report what's going on on the ground because the command is underground in the bunker. So we had to keep tab on what was going on outside. And then also at that point, it was towards the end of the first week was when we started taking tank shelling because the entrance to where our bunker is on a sort of a slight raised hill. So like our area is completely visible to the Russian forces as they approach Mariupol. So we started taking some tank fire. And then after that, it got pretty quiet in regards to my vicinity. What kind of kit did you have, Aiden? Did you have night vision goggles, anti-tank guided munitions, javelins? So in regards to equipment, Ukrainians, they had the uh, British-provided N-laws. There was also javelins being used. There was night vision goggles, but obviously not everyone had them. The night vision were with the units that needed them most. The guys who were on the very front line, like with the uh, Russian units, just on the outskirts of our territory. So they had a lot of the equipment, which was understandable. In regards to myself, I had my standard IFAC. I was using... Ukrainian body armor, which was the extra protection, the flat neck protection, stuff like that. And quite a lot of the Ukrainians, they either had their own home-brought helmets or some of them were using the Ukrainian-provided stuff. Vehicle-wise, we had tanks from the brigade. They had some T-72s and T-80s. We had some artillery guns. I think we had 152, I think. And then on top of that, mortar-wise, we had four... 120 uh, mortars and obviously we're working together with the brigade and the other units that were around this area. After that initial tank engagement, you said it went pretty quiet? Yeah, so after that initial tank engagement, it was pretty quiet. So in that total week, we literally just spent working on getting the logistical stuff in this setup, a, uh, an area where we can store food because we know we're going to be here for like a long time. So basically trucks just came with a bunch of like food, just trucks and trucks of it. We filled up half the bunker with food storage, water. You keep saying bunker. So I assume you're using the steelworks buildings yeah, uh, inside of buildings. And then did they have a bunker system like the Avistol steel plant did? Yeah. So because it's Ukraine, it's an like ex-Soviet country. A lot of the buildings in general related to industrial or just public sorts of, they all have bunkers in them. So in the bunker, you will normally have a storage room that will also have rations and water and all that. So that was like the good thing. But unfortunately, the bunker that we were in, it wasn't as deep as the one they had at Azovstal. From what I heard from some of the guys I was speaking to when I was in Illichar, they told me that the bunker that was in Azovstal was 30 meters deep, whereas the one that I was in, it was only like four meters deep. So in the beginning, it was pretty okay. But like towards the end, when we started taking heavy shelling and airstrikes, and so that's when it got pretty shitty. So 
towards the end of the first week, it got pretty quiet. I mean, there's still heavy fighting going on around the outside of it. And then in the second week, we got our first airstrike on our position. One of the Russian jets had spotted where some vehicles were parked behind the building. So they dropped, I think it was a 300-pound bomb. So it took out a good portion of that area. And then for the vast majority of that, they didn't really target us too much. They were targeting mainly the uh, the defensive positions around the uh, steelworks. And obviously in that period of time as well, I was able to see how they were using the artillery and how they were using the uh, grads against not us, but like they were using it against the city itself. So what they would do is I would be on guard duty at nighttime and you'd be able to see where they can shoot the artillery from because you can see the flashes or sometimes they would drive the grad trucks three kilometers out and then they would just do a volley of grad and the grad would go over us and then it would like hit the city behind us. So it was pretty quiet in regards to like combat or shelling wise until like the very last two weeks. This is last two weeks to March? Yes, yeah, it was pretty quiet in regards to my area of operation. Everywhere else around the uh, steelworks was pretty heavy because they were on the contact line. And like, was there guidance to really conceal your positions by staying within the buildings or any other interesting urban concealment tactics? Um, yeah, so after the airstrike, I think that was when the Ukrainians sort of, because before the invasion began, there was a lot of, not the old school veterans, but there was a lot of new soldiers that laugh and think of it as a joke. I remember saying to like one uh, new soldier he'd been in like a year and if I remember it correctly, he was hoping that there'd be an invasion so we could kick their ass. I got pissed at him and I started like saying, you're an idiot. And he says like, why? Like, I want to fight. He says, well, yeah, like, wait till the first airstrike hits you. And I think it was after that first airstrike that people started taking the threat of airstrikes a lot more seriously because after that we were like, basically told because we were on the entrance to the bunker and because we're above the ground we were basically the eyes and ears so like we hear a jet or if it gets called out on the radio we have to make sure everyone knows and then basically prevent people from getting outside until the all clear is being given so yeah they started taking the threat a lot more seriously in, in regards to the air threats so Aiden, we're at towards the end of march the shelling and the aerial strikes are, are increasing. What's next? Is there a recognition that you've been surrounded and that, that it's getting bad? Yeah, so in the, uh, I'd say it was probably like the three weeks before, we basically got orders. Because we were in a steelworks, we had a bunch of steel lying around. We had tools to like do stuff. So the, the, the commander basically told us to start preparing the vehicle, start putting steel on them, just something to help protect it against fire from Russian forces. So we started preparing all the vehicles, welding them and just putting two layers of steel on them. And we did this to every vehicle. We up-armoured the BTRs with sandbags and just whatever we could. At that point, we realised we were preparing to try and break out. By this point, Russian forces had captured about 145 kilometres between us and the Ukrainian lines. So we, we knew it was a pretty long distance to even consider trying to drive that far. So fast forward to the last week of March, by this point, like aerial airstrikes, artillery, tank, it's just gone up to probably like 90% throughout the day. One point we had three tanks firing at our position. We had airstrikes as well as that. And then we had also had the artillery. 
So by this point, Russian forces had managed to enter the city of Mariupol. They basically done a pincer move and cut us off from the rest of the city where Azov regiment were in, in the Azovstal steel works. And what happened was when they did this, the hospital runs in between us and the Azovstal steelworks. So the wounded and everyone that was at the hospital had to be evacuated and they came to where we were. So by this point in our bunker now, we've got like maybe 700 or 800. We've got a lot of people in a bunker. So that's a great question in my studies. I know a little bit about how they did it in Avastol. How did you separate basically your unit in combatants and the civilians in your areas? So we didn't really have any uh, civilians with us because the hospital that was evacuated, it was a military hospital. Okay, gotcha. So there wasn't any civilians. I think there was like maybe one or two who were like family members. Um, I remember seeing one child. He was with his father who was mobilized. I don't know why he was there. I think it was just probably there because he's got no one else to be with or something similar. And at this point, because we were in a fairly small bunker, there wasn't really any way for us to either separate the wounded. We were like pretty cramped in there. And by this point, food had pretty much run out. You know, it got that bad that one point I went to where one of the cauldrons for where the cooks were preparing food and I just took a spoon and just tried to scrape out all the burnt stuff to just try to eat something. And that's how bad it got. And then also on top of that, I, I remembered where I had seen like a box of MREs that I was pretty sure might still be there. But it also meant going up top, which was like super dangerous at that time because the artillery was just sporadic and random. I went up and got to the kitchen and luckily I found the, the box that I remember seeing that was hidden and people forgot about it. So I went and got that and then I came back down and one of the gals that was in my unit, she uh, saw me with the MREs. So she asked, is there any more? Like, can you show me where it is? And I went to go show her. And then when we got the MREs again, that was when we got hit with artillery. So we were like blown down. It hit the building like right next to us inside the factory. So we then had to run to the bunker, which was only like 50 meters away, but it, it felt like it was a lot more than that because of the artillery. I mean, speaking of that, during this time, how did you keep spirits high, morale high? Is there anything that you guys were doing specifically to keep your spirits up? In regards to myself, because I was there and also because I've been doing a lot of filming, I was building my documentary for the past two, two and a half years of just life on the front line in the trenches and stuff. So I had all my filming equipment. So what, what I was doing, because like because I knew the situation, and I knew that this situation is going to end up with us either being captured or killed, or maybe there's a very slim possibility that we might get out. At this point, when I wasn't doing anything, I was just running around with my camera, just trying to document everything um, as much as I could. So that, that was kind of my way to try and keep my mind off the subject that we might actually end up being captured or killed. A lot of the Ukrainians, uh, by this point, I could see people were stressed. You could really see and like sense it in the bunk, in the smoking area. I mean, by this point, we'd run out of cigarettes. So if you had a cigarette, they would get swarmed by people asking them for a smoke. So you had the stress of the artillery and stuff and like no food pretty much. So by this point, a lot of people were like pretty... Uh, mentally uh, distraught there's quite a few guys that still tried to keep people's like, spirits up i had one guy i always consider him a bit of a joker and i remember i was like sat with him like talking and i remember i said something negative i said like this is a situation and i remember he said to me he says johnny you know 
Like it's not it's not a bad situation. It's just it's like that situation. We're, we're three hundred. We're Spartans. And I said to him, he says, "Do you know how that ends?" <laughs> <laughs> I have gotten that a couple of times when I used that as a reference before Mariupol had fallen. One hundred percent, yeah. But that dark humor, you can't. Soldiers in dark humor is uh, almost like chicken soup for the soul for the soldier. Yeah. So it sounds like it's getting pretty dire. How does that decision? Who makes the decision? I saw your video, which I, th- I think is pretty famous. Basically, you're, one of your last days, you're on top. You're talking about you've run out of ammo, and there's probably a coming decision to surrender. So basically, what happened was just the day before, or I think it was two days before, was when they hit us like with the most intense artillery. Like er- they just hit us with everything. They either trying to kill us or send us a message. So everyone was pretty okay during the initial shelling, like laughing about it. But then at some point during the afternoon, we hear an explosion again. But then this time we hear that the explosion isn't just an explosion. It, it's like a chain reaction. And you can hear all this shooting going off. And you can hear what sounds like ammo going off, basically. It was like super loud. And like I knew what it was straight away. I've heard like ammo going off before. And then everyone started to realize that they've just hit the... Because... Uh, what we had done the, the days leading up to this, those vehicles that we prepared to like weld, we got given the command a few days beforehand to get the vehicles ready, load the vehicles up so that they're ready to go at a moment's notice. So the Russian jets, they'd somehow, I don't know if they were tipped off. I don't think they will have been because it was inside a huge factory. So there was no way they could see it from the air or they just got lucky. So they managed to drop a bomb. The first bomb didn't detonate. And because they were using the Soviet-grade ammunition, the second bomb, it came back round and it dropped a second one, um, which hit the uh, trucks that carried all our ammunition in it. So that went off. And then once people realized that they basically just hit our trucks with all the ammunition, it had javelin ammunition and law, all our mortar ammunition. We pretty much knew none, like, were pretty... I remember there was a moment, I'll, I'll never be able to forget it, because it was, for me, it was, like, quite iconic moment just from memory was when I went into the smoking area like as I was going past I remember seeing my battalion commander sat on a chair just smoking a cigarette but the expression on his face was it's like hard to describe when I remember seeing him it it looked like he was really not you could see that his expression wasn't what it was a few days ago I could kind of feel his emotion I think the best way I could probably describe it is is that he all these people are in his, under his command and he knows that there's no way out for them, if that conveys correctly. Yeah, absolutely. The, that burden of command and that, I can't imagine, I, I haven't seen it, but I can definitely imagine the emotion that he was under. Yeah, yeah um, so I, I remember seeing that and as soon as I saw that, that's when I knew it's only a matter of time before either the airstrike hits our bunker and foxes or we either decide to go and try to make make a go for it or we surrender. So later on that night, around I think it was around 11 o'clock, I get woken up and then my commander, my company commander comes over to me and tells me I've got a choice. You've got five minutes to make this decision. He says, right, you can either choose to go out with the vehicles and try and make a break for Saperizhnia, which is like 145 kilometers away through enemy territory, or you can try and walk out on foot to try and evade Russian forces, or you can stay here with whoever else is staying here and the wounded and surrender officially. Obviously, because of my experience in Syria, where we've been on the attacking side of air superiority, 
when ISIS ever tried to break out the city in convoys, they just got up from the airstrikes and stuff. So I knew I didn't want to do that just because of my experience seeing that happen to like similar situations. And then I kind of wanted to do the walkout. I wanted to try and like get out on foot. But then I was I was trying to find out like how many are going out on foot. And then then I like found out like quite a lot of people are like gonna try and get out on foot. And at that point, because of how small our like territory was, I kind of figured it would either be suicidal or it would end up just getting captured, which in my eyes I didn't want to do because at this point, you know, you had the brigade, you had National Guard, you, you had like over a thousand people making the same decision. I knew like if I did that, then there's a big chance that there's going to be a lot of other people going down that same route. So the chances of you evading capture or like running into someone that gives away your position um, was a really high. So I, I scratched that one off and I just decided to take the chance and just decide to surrender. So Aiden, were you were you guys aware of the one breakout of the police that linked up with the Avistal? At this point, I wasn't aware of it. The communication was like pretty chaotic. It wasn't until I got released that I found out that there was actually a breakthrough attempt to Azovstal. Because as far as I was aware, was that we were breaking through to Saporizhnia, which we did try to do. Well, units of my battalion did try to do with some of the brigade, but they failed because the airstrikes and artillery prevented them. But I remember like reading about that there was some parts of our brigade that managed to get to Azovstal. Um, I think if that was an option, I think I might have taken it at that time. But I, I hadn't like no knowledge of that going on. Okay. No, that's a grim decision to have to make. And I mean, nobody can imagine that. You give it five minutes, make that choice between the three. I mean, the, the good thing was I already knew what the situation was going to come to. So I'd been preparing myself mentally from the moment that we got encircled. I was preparing myself. There's a very slim chance that we're not going to get out of this. So like, I had like three weeks to try and like prepare myself mentally for it. So I think that did help me in some capacity. Yeah. And it actually, it seemed that your videos kept you connected to something other than something to the outside in some way. Yeah. At least that's the way I felt it. I mean, because before the proof of life video, I did a video before that. I think it was like a week before just giving an update to the situation in the city and then Two weeks before the the one before that, I did another video just just trying to keep Mariupol being spoken about, and it was a way for me to just help like tell people I'm still alive and that we're still alive and holding and stuff. So I I think you're right in that capacity. It did it did help a lot with like just having that connection, especially using the because we had the Starlink internet system. So that was like a huge benefit. If we didn't have the Starlink, no information would have got out whatsoever. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a fascinating talk, topic to me, and, and I, I've heard it throughout your thread about that internet and staying connected. I was a, one of your followers on your Twitter feed. I mean, just a you know a historic battle, but to be connected all the way up until the moment you decide and you make your decision, which you decided to be a part to surrender. Yeah. How did that process go? So once the first two groups, who dis, whoever decided to go on the vehicles or whoever decided to go, they left, and so then it was... Those who were surrendering, there must have been about 600 of us in the uh, bunker, mixed with the wounded. And then there was also a senior captain who was left in charge because our battalion commander chose to try and drive out. So the captain was left in charge of those who decided to surrender. And he, around 4 a.m., he put the radio call to the Russian command 
basically asking for terms of surrender. The Russians got back to him, told him basically to gather a list of everyone's position, like unit, and basically disarm, put them in a pile in a location. And then we had like maybe, I think we had two hours to basically prepare ourselves. And then at this point, the captain, he turns the Wi-Fi on the Starlink, he turns it on so it's open for everyone. Because before that, it was like closed sometimes, so I wasn't able to get internet all the time. So as soon as I saw that the Starlink was on, first thing I did was reinstall Facebook because before he turned it back on, I'd already just, I had already like deleted everything off my phone and like factory reset it. And I was planning to destroy it, but I luckily I saw the internet was on before I did that. So I created a new Facebook, got in contact with family, told them what the situation is, told them I was surrendering. Um, and then I called my fiance, told her the same thing. And, and then I spoke to a friend as well, said the same thing. And then just after I did that, I said to myself, I need to do a video. I need a video to get out so people can see I'm still alive before I surrender. So I went up to the, uh, like out of the bunker and up to the ground and just basically did the proof of life video just to tell people I'm alive. Like if anything happens to me, basically they'll know that I was killed. So I did the video, went back, sent it. And then just before we got told to go to the meeting point, I made sure to destroy my my phone after I deleted everything. I destroyed it and then I broke it apart and then I uh, separated like all the chips and stuff and destroyed the uh, hard drive chip and I made sure that they wouldn't find it at all. So then we get told to organize into our units. Whoever was left in my mortar company, we got organized and we went unit by unit to the meeting point for the white flag. So we got in the back of the truck. I think it was about like 25, maybe 30 of us. We were stood on the back of this open top truck. We had the white flag and then we drove around the territory. As we drove along, there was just complete destruction everywhere. Like all the vehicles that I'd seen that we prepared, the vast majority of them got destroyed or there was like destroyed Humvees just littering the roads. And then eventually we get to the point where we got told to dismount and basically get on foot and just walk to the other side of the, uh, the road where there was a residential area, which is where the Russians were. Once we get there, like we're like at this point, we've got our hands raised and we see the Russian soldier. He waves us over, leads us back. And then as we're walking past all these other Russian soldiers, like on our left, set up in position. Eventually, they bring us back to some like side road where there's a bunch of other Russians waiting. And then they told us to get in a line and basically just hand our uh, military documents. And then we get searched and then they give us our military documents back. The guy who searched me, he took my passport and saw it. And then he asked, are you British? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, why are you here? And I said, my fiance is Ukrainian. And he was like, ah. Oh. And then gave that back. And then they loaded us onto a bus and took us to another village that wasn't too far away. And then once we got to the other place, they unloaded us and got us into a warehouse, which was at this point in Sartanar, which wasn't too far from where... This village was the place we used to go to on the weekends to pick up logistics and stuff. So we get loaded into a warehouse. We get put into a stress position on the wall, like lined up, basically like hunched over against the person in front. And then one by one, they start taking people out of the line to start processing. Everyone like goes through like this. Some people get, get smacked a bit. They fall back in line and then eventually it's my turn to go up. And then I give them my military ID, like no problems. Give them my veterans card, no problem. And then I give him my passport, which has a Ukrainian passport cover on it, even though it's a British passport. He opens it, he's like scanning through it, and then he realizes that something's up. And then again, this guy turns to me and he's like, he asks me, like, where are you from? 
And then as soon as I said Great Britain, like I got an instant smack to the face, which I expected. I, I knew it was coming. They beat me a few times, but it, it wasn't hard, hard beating. It was more like manhandling, like beating. Aiden, that was like from the record I could pull. That was April 12th, right? When you surrendered? Yeah, April 12th. I did see they posted, I don't know if it was the next day, but they posted pictures of you pretty beaten up on the internet. Yeah, so on April 12th, on the evening, I was taken to the filtration place. And on April 13th was when the Russian soldiers came the next day. They took me into the back of their Tiga vehicle, asked me some basic questions. They were pretty okay. One of them gave me a packet of cigarettes. And then I got taken back into the warehouse. By this point, all our brigade, most of the guys who I surrendered with were in there. And then eventually, sometime later, some guys from the MGB, which is basically Donetsk FSB or KGB, they took me out, started like interrogating me, asking me questions. I kept telling them I'm Ukrainian Marine, I'm Mortarman, told them my position, etc. And then they kept saying I was a mercenary. I said, no, I'm Ukrainian Marine. And then they said, no, you and Sean Pinner are snipers. I says, no, 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 I'm Ukrainian Marine. I'm not a mercenary, I'm Ukrainian Marine, so I'm Mortarman. And then he like pointed at my tattoo, made me like take my uh, coat off and pointed at my tattoo. And then he like brought up Sean. He says, no, you're a sniper. We find Sean, he's dead. You and him, mercenary, like sniper. And I was like, no, 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 no. And then they say to me, like, okay, we're going to test you. Like, if it turns out you're lying, we're going to punish you. So what they did was they went into another warehouse building and they said, we've got some of your friends from your unit. We're going to bring them in here. If, if they don't repeat what you've just said, like, we're going to punish you. So they went into the other room and they brought some of the guys who I'd seen go on foot. So they got captured and they brought them in and basically just asked them the same thing that they asked me. And they just repeated the same thing that I said. Uh, I think that kind of saved me at that point. And then they put me back in with the rest of the guys. I went straight over to my uh, commander. I said to him, look, they're going to take me. I don't know where I'm going to get taken to. Just tell my family I love them. Because at this point, I knew I'm going to be taken just by the way they were with me. So 20 minutes go by and then my name gets called and I go there, go to the door and then they put handcuffs on me. And then they take me to their SUV, put me in the back of it. As I'm getting to the back of the SUV, I notice the uh, license plate says Donetsk. So I knew I was going to Donetsk. I was kind of hoping I'd go to Russia, but I don't know why it'd probably be the same there, but I was like hoping to go to Russia. But then once I saw the license plate, I knew I was going straight to Donetsk. As soon as I got into the SUV, we were driving out the compound and the guy who was in the front seat, he turned to me and says, now we're going to go take you to be shot. He said it in Russian. I just pretended I didn't understand it, just stayed quiet. We drove for like, I think two hours. For the first like 30 minutes, I was thinking like, this is how I die. I'm about to be shot. I just stayed quiet, just thought about my family, thought about what they're doing right now. And then after like 30 minutes had passed, I realized we're going somewhere else. So once I realized I wasn't being shot, then that's when I started talking to myself. I started preparing myself mentally because I knew what was coming next isn't going to be nice. I knew at that point I was expecting to get interrogated like what you normally expect. So I knew it was coming. And then eventually we reached Donetsk and I get out of the car. At this point, I've got a hood on my, well, a bag on my head. I get out, they take the handcuffs off. And then there's another guy who I can see just through the bag and just see his outline. He says something to me in Russian and I didn't understand him. So then I asked him, I asked him to repeat what he said because I didn't understand. And as soon as I said that, I just got hit over the head with a police baton. 
which is where I got this injury from. And then he, he hit me a few more times around the back of the head on here. And then he also hit me here. But at that point, I thought I got hit. But it turns out it's actually where he stabbed me. And then he dragged me into the building to be beaten for like two hours. Uh, I watched some of your other interviews talking about the stabbing and you didn't know you were stabbed. One of the things you said during your interview, which I think is, I mean, I, I have no way to comprehend, but what, you know, once you got put into solitary confinement, what kept you mentally going? I heard your response. It made me think a lot about, there's a book called A Man's Search for Meaning about Viktor Frankl, who, who's in the concentration camps. And if you have something to live for, but what kept you going in solitary confinement? For the first three weeks, I was probably pretty naive, I think. I kept like thinking, like, oh, maybe I'm going to be exchanged quickly. And like all the other guys I was with, they were saying the same thing. Oh, you're British, you're going to be exchanged quickly. So I was pretty naive. I think a lot of it was just me hoping it would be true. So I was really naive in the beginning. Uh, and then eventually after like the first or second month, the realization set in. But at the same time, I was still like keeping track of like, I'll see my fiance again. So I definitely think a big part of it was my fiance getting me through it. I remember one of the things I said to, there was a, another friend uh, just before we surrendered, just before we went, he was absolutely scared. I feel bad for him so much, but he was that scared. He was willing to shoot himself. Because he, he honestly was so scared about surrendering. And at that time, he was he had a leg injury, so he had his leg in a cast. And he had to basically convince him, like, don't shoot yourself. And then just tell him, like, everything we're about to go through is about to be bad. But at the, end, at the end of it, you will go home eventually. So I think that helped me as well, like, just telling people and then remembering that stuff that I will go home eventually. But then eventually you're sentenced to death, right? Yeah, so when we get told we're going to be going to court for like mercenaries, I mean, they're telling us like, oh, it carries the sentence of death. At this point, I'm still like, oh, like, maybe they're just going to do this propaganda, make it seem like this big bad like entity. And then at the last minute, they're going to be like, okay, we'll give you life in prison. But then once we got to the tribunal and we got to the verdict and they said we're being sentenced to death, that's when my mental like, like health like took a really bad turn because logically like thinking like it wouldn't make sense for them to like sentence us to death and then not do anything because they've just told everyone they're going to like sentence these big bad mercenaries to death and then nothing happens because the way I was thinking they would do it make it all a show and then life in prison but the way I saw it was that now that they've sentenced us to death they're now going to have to do something to show that they're true by their words or else they're going to lose face my mental health after that took a really bad turn you know, it got to the point, I got back to the cell. And at, at this point, the cells were in the solitary confinement cells, but we have three other people in it. It's just that they're designed for solitary confinement. So in this cell, we've got two beds, like bunk beds. But in my cell, there was five people, including myself. So I get back to the cell and one of the guys there, he speaks English. He was also a Marine. And I tell him what happens. The first thing he said, he's like typical, like sort of gopnicky sort of guy. He like tells like Johnny, like, it's all bullshit. Don't believe it. It's bullshit. Don't believe it. And at this point, because I don't know what to believe anymore, it took its toll on me quite a lot. I was at that point where I wanted to cry, but I couldn't cry. Um, I, I tried so much to just cry, but I was too scared to cry because of the place we were in or that I didn't have any emotion to cry. Do you think being with 
those other people helped as opposed to if you were just in a cell by yourself? Yeah, I think it definitely helps. Definitely helps a lot more than being by myself because, you know, we were able to interact with each other, like dark humor again. Yeah. I mean, in, in this place, every weekday you would have, every weekday new arrivals would come to the prison. So you knew there was new arrivals because that's when you could hear people being tortured or stuff. Because like what they like to do when they first arrive is give people like 62 beatings with the police baton and then maybe electrocute them. So you'd normally hear them screaming. You'd always have like dark humor jokes like, oh, sounds like new arrivals arrived today. And then you just like make some jokes about the new guys. Yeah, I can't imagine. So it's like the only way to get through that sort of stuff. And then you'd also like try, obviously, with my position, I was being like exploited for propaganda. From the very beginning, like the first thing they came in and said to me was like, oh, you're a famous blogger, you're this and that, Cossack Gundy. Right. And as soon, as soon as they mentioned that, I knew I knew where this was going. I knew basically what I had to do. I actually spoke to my friend just before I surrendered. I said to him, look, they're going to they're gonna use me for bullshit propaganda. And these idiots in Russians, for whatever reason, they took that segment of the phone call I did. They were listening to it and they decided to upload it of me saying I'm going to be used for bullshit propaganda. Yeah, so every time I'd go out for propaganda, uh, maybe sometimes I'll get to speak to my family in regards to getting them to try to do stuff that the Russians wanted to do. So like whenever I'd speak to my family, I'd try and get information without them like knowing, and then I would pass it back to the guys I was in the cell with. Wow. So you were in captivity. You were, you were a POW under Russian care from April 12th to September 21st? Uh, yeah, September 21st. Wow. Well, brother, unfortunately, I, I know we could talk just about that period for a long time. And I, I think your story is amazing. It's an honor for me to have it, a piece of your story and, and to share that with my listeners. And I hope that you write a book about the experience, not you just fighting for the freedom of Ukraine, but for fighting for yourself in captivity and surviving it. Just an amazing human soul story. I really appreciate it, you sharing it with me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out Individualized other podcasts as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.